Hey there. It's been a while. Specifically, it's been about 13 weeks or just about three months since I was originally intending to release this episode. Uh, as we've all learned on this show so far, though, life doesn't always work out the way we expect. Uh, without getting into too much detail, I had a lot of things come up work-wise that basically cut into my time and ability to put together the last two episodes of this podcast up to a standard of quality that I was happy with. I sincerely apologize for the delay, but finally, with this holiday season and to wrap up the year, I am happy to bring you, my classmates, and any other listeners, the final two episodes of this podcast. I hope you enjoy it, and I was worth the wait. Also, just a reminder that these interviews were conducted back over the summer, so things may have changed a little bit since then, but in any case, let's not wait anymore, and let's dive in, shall we? Hello and welcome to the We Run This Podcast, a show about the Stanton College Prep Class of 2010 and how we continue to kill it 10 years on. I'm Paulo Bautista. When I was prepping for production on this podcast, one of the things I had to do was get questions I was going to ask my guests in the interviews. The who, the what, the where, and the when. You know, the typical stuff you would ask at a reunion. What have you been up to? Where do you live now? When did you start that new job? Who did you end up falling in love with? But there's another W question we were taught back in middle and even elementary school that doesn't get nearly asked as much as it should sometimes. Why? While the other questions are pretty straightforward and have fairly objective, straightforward answers to them, why is a tough nut to crack? Frankly, it's a question that can get pretty existential pretty quickly. Why do I do the job I do? Why do I put up with the trials and tribulations life puts before us, especially in 2020 of all years? Why do we deal with everything going on? If you're not careful, it can lead to answers that get pretty dark pretty quickly. That why isn't an answer that comes easily and doesn't come from the same place for everyone. For some people, it's a belief in a higher being and some god or universe-granted destiny. For others, they find purpose in what they do by seeing the impact their work has on others. And others find rationalization for their work from within that can't really be explained by anyone else, but it makes sense for them and that's all they need to keep going. Today, we'll look at three different classmates who found purpose in their three different vocations from three different places, and how that lets them run this. First of this episode, Ben Sullivan. All right, so I'm Ben Sullivan, a proud member of the Stanton College Prep class of 2010. I just graduated with my MBA from Harvard Business School, and I am excited to uh, be back in Atlanta, Georgia, where I spent a bunch of time to restart with uh, McKinsey & Company. Now, personally, going back to high school, I remember Ben as someone who, for, with all his enthusiasm, seemed to know exactly what it is he wanted to do with his life after graduation. But according to him, that wasn't really the case. Oh man, I think that um, enthusiastic and directionless kind of go hand in hand. I mean, I I had no idea what I was wanted to do when I when I grew up, and I think to a lot of extent that's that's still true. I was excited to kind of try new things and and see what else the world had had to offer me. 
Um, but I had no idea what that was. After graduating from high school, he found his way to Georgia Tech University and took his time to enjoy the college life while also trying to figure out what it is that he wanted to do after college. I wanted to move somewhere out of Florida. I'd been in Florida my whole remembered life and I wanted to go to a, a city and I wanted to study um, something kind of technical because I like math and science and I remember visiting MIT and A, not getting in, but B, remembering it was the coldest weekend of my life. So I moved a little farther south in my sights and ended up going to Georgia Tech in sunny Atlanta, which was amazing. I studied materials engineering and then got a minor in business. So after graduation, instead of going straight into an engineering job, Ben ended up in management consulting. How did that exactly come to pass? So, I mean, I really love the analytical problem solving of engineering breaking down really challenging, complex, confusing things into kind of a known quantities and, and figuring out the answer. When I got to do internships, though, and got to actually try out and see what an engineer does on, on a day-to-day -day basis, I, I was miserable. I worked um, at GE Aviation doing really cool stuff with jet engines um, and then worked at Boeing. Both very, very cool jobs for people who like to be engineers, um, but, but weren't a good fit for me. I, I missed interacting with people. I miss kind of the really big uh, questions and really big challenges and thinking about how things all kind of fit together and balancing these big trade-offs. So I liked problem solving. I wanted to kind of apply the toolkit, but I, uh, I didn't think engineering was right for me. So I kind of asked all my smart friends, you know, who, who are people who like to solve big problems? And most of them said, apply, uh, try to be a consultant because that's a, that's a lot of big problems. Now, if you remember from past episodes, Ben is by no means the only engineering major from our class. In fact, he's not the only classmate of ours to go intern at GE or at Boeing. And while this show is mostly about looking at the wildly different circumstances we all ended up in, it's interesting to see how even with similar starting points, we've diverged so much, even past the common starting point of graduating from Stanton. And not to say that one path is better than the other, they're just different, as we all are as individuals. And the appeal that one person might find in a certain experience will differ vastly from the next. Speaking of experiences, Ben's experience at McKinsey & Company was exactly what he was looking for, looking at big problems. I had one of the most powerful experiences there. I think it's a phenomenal company of a lot of really great people trying to solve really big problems. And the cool thing about McKinsey, at least in my mind, is we got to work on really big systemic problems addressing companies. A lot of the work that I did kind of with my engineering background was around operations, so how companies run um, and how to make change happen in operations, specifically with kind of like frontline transformations. If you've got, you know, like a manufacturing company that isn't in good straits, how do you help them build a a turnaround plan that works for them, where people can get excited about the opportunity of it um, and people are willing to put in, in the big work. A lot of it is helping to understand kind of what are the root causes that got a, a company to the place that, that it is. So it's talking to people, asking a lot of questions, being kind of nosy and being kind of obnoxious. A lot of it's then prioritizing, understanding, okay, you're, you're doing a lot of, you can do a lot of different things, what's going to be the most worthwhile if you've got you know, a limited number of people or a limited number of dollars. And then a lot of it is then you know, building, building the plan and, and selling the plan to the people on why, why the change is necessary and how to make it happen. So it's a lot of relationship building, even at a very early stage, just kind of hitting the floor. 
gaining trust with uh, the people that work there that are the experts and helping them kind of co-create a plan to, to get something significantly better. Some of that relationship building Ben was able to do on the floor is where he found his purpose in his role as a consultant, seeing the work that he was doing to help businesses in distress make a plan to stay open and be viable to help those that he was working with keep their jobs and make a livelihood. And I really, really enjoyed it because the impact was some of the companies that I worked with were trying to close down plants or facilities and, and we got to do really powerful work to make a, a plant or a site profitable again, which meant people kept their jobs, which meant people could pay their mortgage and live their life the way that they wanted to. And it was the people that I got to learn from and, and talk to every day. So that part of the impact uh, is what kept me excited about working with McKinsey and, and why I really enjoyed it. Now, as Ben noted earlier, he just graduated from business school. In fact, Harvard Business School, one of the top MBA programs in the world. If he was enjoying his time at McKinsey, why go back to school? I really have liked the opportunity to dive into business problems. They kind of scratched the itch that engineering hadn't. But I also didn't feel like I was fully prepared and didn't have the same kind of business knowledge that, that everyone else had. So I, I thought that it would be fun to go back. And you know, like, like most of the people who probably are listening to this, I love school um, and love the opportunity to learn. So once I had had a little distance from school, I was excited and ready to go back and learn something new and try something new. And when the opportunity to go to Harvard came around, it was a, a no-brainer in my mind. So once again, a new grad, what does Ben see as the big problems he wants to tackle with his signing new degree? I think I'm prioritizing still learning. I feel like I have a lot to learn about business, about being a leader, about being a manager, um, and about how to make a contribution. So I think that part of it is going to just kind of be, A, enjoy where I am and try to soak up as much as I can, and then B, be opportunistic. Because I, I think that you know business presents a lot of really fascinating problems um, and really a ton of opportunities to step up and be a leader. Uh, and in today's world, you know, we need leadership more than ever. We need really thoughtful leadership. You know, in my mind, you know, our politicians not really stepping in and doing that. And and I think you see business having great power to lead. You see some you know, powerful people, Bill Gates, and um, really driving a lot of change. But then you also see a lot of companies that are are pretty problematic in the ways that they address problems, whether it's around their consciousness of global warming or whether it's about you know being an equitable place to work we just really need good leaders and, I, and i'm looking forward to kind of finding opportunities in the business world where i think that i can have an impact on organizations and make sure that they're doing the best for the people that they serve and what are those specific issues that he wants to tackle first and foremost as a business leader I think that creating, you know, an equitable work environment is, you know, obviously very hot in, in the news right now and very at the forefront of people's mind. But I, I think that that is really, really important. I think that there's such power in getting together a diverse group of thinkers um, and leaders to rethink some of the problems that, that each industry is facing, right? I don't think any one person can solve any one problem. But if we can build organizations that just put people together in a better way, things like how companies tackle climate change, how they tackle you know, the rise of automation, how they tackle growing inequity in the United States and kind of how they develop their labor force. I think that that kind of organization building piece of it is, is the most important. And it's a skill that is broadly applicable 
you know, every company could be better about having a better mix of people and more representative mix of leaders making the decisions uh, with a wider view on what their impact really has to be as leaders in, in the world. For Ben, the problems that he wants to take on aren't so much a purpose in life as they are a responsibility afforded to him by his privilege and the education that he's been able to receive. I mean, I, like I said before, I think in, in 2010, I was you know energetic but directionless. I think that I still, in a lot of ways, am in that kind of trying to figure out what exactly my my role is. But I think that I've come to realize a lot of kind of the responsibility that I, I think that I have. You know, we were super fortunate to go to an amazing school, have an amazing education. I'm certain that in each of our fields, you know, folks look up to us as authorities, whether it's technical authorities or, or otherwise. And I think the, the way that I, you know, probably changed most is kind of an understanding of that privilege and that responsibility and how much more of an opportunity that I have to kind of step into leadership roles than a lot of folks do. So trying to figure out how to challenge myself to make sure that I, you know, my, my yearbook quote was going to be the change you wish to see in the world. How, how am I holding my feet, my own feet to the fire on, on accomplishing that given the privilege that I have? Next up, another classmate of ours who wants to make a change by taking on the issues of inequity and injustice in the world through a little bit of a different career. Next up, we have Brandon Sack. My name is Brandon Sheck, class of 2010, represent. I am a lawyer with the New England Innocence Project in Boston, Massachusetts, and we do work in all of the six New England states. Now, much like Ben, Brandon didn't have much of an eye to the future when in high school. Instead, he opted to try to focus on the scramble to keep up with our class workload. In high school, kind of just happy-go-lucky going with the flow, trying to, trying to survive I always felt like I was behind in everything, just trying to survive and trying to keep up with you know the present, not really looking into the future very much and just trying to try to survive. That being said, it wasn't all classwork for Brandon. In particular, he was also involved extracurricularly with the Hugs program, which focused on tutoring younger children who would go on to be very influential for him in his career. Uh, I was involved in hugs, tutoring, and mentoring elementary school and middle school kids at the Malibu Washington Center. That was really informative for me. I think one of the things that I've become really passionate in is education, helping individuals with their education and tutoring and that kind of thing. And that was kind of the first glance that I got into that. After graduating from Stanton, Brandon went to the University of Florida with a certain career in mind when he started, though that would quickly change. I was a double major in criminology and law and sport management. When I started undergrad, I thought that I wanted to be a sport agent. That all seemed really cool to me. And I realized that very soon into undergrad that kind of the idea that I had in my mind was not the reality. I realized that there wasn't like a purpose in it for me. I just realized that that, that wasn't for me. 
What he did find was a calling in the field of criminal defense law, especially after working at a social science research lab looking at the causes of wrongful convictions, specifically convictions where the convicted individual did not actually commit the crime, but for one reason or another was still convicted, not due to legal technicalities. In the research lab, we conducted experiments on, on things like eyewitness misidentification, false confessions. Why do people confess to things that they didn't do? Uh, the way that jurors make decisions and, and kind of getting that uh, firsthand knowledge and seeing how these things unfold in real life was really informative and really very eye-opening. And then doing research and, and looking into kind of the underlying issues, the, the systemic issues at play, things like systemic racism and economic inequalities and how people of color are disproportionately affected by the criminal justice system. And obviously understanding this through my own lived experience, you know, growing up in the South and seeing this inter interplay and in understanding who my dad's clients were. And, and, and the more I learned, the more I was really heartbroken to understand what our criminal justice or criminal legal system actually is. Uh, there's really no justice in our criminal legal system. I don't really know why people say criminal justice system. It all was just very inspiring, and I knew that that was my passion moving forward. And it was the first time in my life that really something clicked with me, that I found a purpose. And I knew that this was something that I wanted to kind of devote my life to and kind of do whatever I could to help. Now, we just alluded to how some of Brandon's dad's clients were affected by systemic racism. Brandon's dad was in fact also a criminal defense lawyer and had a huge impact on Brandon's decision to pursue the same kind of law. Uh, my dad was my best friend growing up. I really looked up to my dad and, and he really motivated me to do my best. He always had a mantra, do your best, that's all, that's all that can be expected of you. That was always so influential at Stanton for me because I was never the best at Stanton. I was never even close. You know, I would come home with maybe grades that I wasn't super happy with. And my mom would chew me out and my dad would be like, you know, was that your best? And I, you know, sometimes it was my best. Sometimes it honestly wasn't my best. But, you know, he was always just there to support me. In my last semester in undergrad, I found out that my dad was terminal. He was, he was terminally ill. And so I was planning on going to law school at the time. I, I thought that I had my my life kind of figured out. I finally found my passion and I finally knew what I was going to do. And and so I knew that I needed to be there for him. And he passed away about, I think, eight months after that. So that kind of left me in a period where I was, I was very much kind of in limbo, just trying to figure out my life. I, I thought that I had things figured out and I really didn't because that's just kind of how life is. You know, one day you think you have everything figured out and then the next thing something just wipes through your life and, and, and really turns it upside down. So, you know, I spent some time after that trying to get myself together and, and refocus and, and reevaluate everything and, and what I really wanted to do. I was always planning to go to law school and for my own passion and also kind of like for my memory of my dad and at least for me kind of like fulfilling on his legacy, uh, that was important for me. 
and that that never changed it, it was just a matter of when it was a matter of i need to get myself right and i need to you know make sure that i'm emotionally fine so that i can after making sure he was in a place to follow his dad's advice and to do his best after two years brandon started law school at emory school of law in 2016. i love atlanta atlanta is such a great place and especially for me in the kind of law that i wanted to practice there's no better place than atlanta you have the history of the civil rights movement and, and there's just so many organizations that do so much influential work to combat systemic racism, social inequality, all these kind of things and, and really organizations that I was able to be a part of, whether through interning or volunteering and, and really just kind of learn the trade and, and be inspired by some of the best lawyers in the country that do this work. In typical Stanton fashion, Brandon ran things while in law school. He was the president of the student organization for law students interested in going into government or nonprofit law as opposed to going into corporate law or a lawyer at a private firm. And he also served as the public defender for the student council conduct court, again, hinting at his eventual future in criminal defense. So after graduating law school, as he noted in his introduction, Brandon is currently working at the Innocence Project. The Innocence Project is a nonprofit founded in New York City back in 1992, basically as old as we are, dedicated to exonerating wrongly convicted individuals. With the developments of DNA profiling and DNA testing in the 1980s, its founders hoped to use that technology to help overturn these wrongful convictions and hopefully prevent individuals from being stuck in prison for decades or worse receiving the death penalty for crime that they did not commit. The Innocence Project also deals with cases of false confession where an individual, for one reason or another, may be coerced to confess to a crime they did not commit and plead guilty, and they also attempt to combat the use of faulty forensic techniques. An example follows from Brandon. Also, a quick content warning, the next segment contains descriptions of assault. We had an exoneration in uh, Massachusetts, December of 2019. A gentleman, his name was Gary Sifazari. He spent 35 years in prison for a murder that he didn't commit. He was convicted based on bite mark evidence. The victim in that case, during the violent assault, she was bitten by her perpetrator on her skin. And, you know, after she passed away, based on postmortem bruising and, and all of that, these indentations on her skin were left. And a forensic odontologist came in eventually skipping forward, you know, in the storyline. And they said, this man, Gary Sifazari, his teeth to the exclusion of every single individual in this planet created those bite marks on this victim. And therefore, he is the one that committed this heinous crime. Now we know that there's no scientific basis for that. You can't look at marks on somebody's skin and say, and match it up to somebody's dental impressions. There's no scientific basis. It's all based on cognitive bias. It's all based on, you know, police come to a suspect and then they want to solve the case and they match it up and they say, this is the guy. All of that is junk science. 
talking to Brandon about another case he worked on, and especially in light of everything going on in the world with regard to the Black Lives Matter movement this past year, it's frankly quite devastating to hear some of the stories that he's been witness to. Uh, this is an individual, his name is Johnny Lee Gates. He was convicted, I believe, in 1977 for murder in Georgia, kind of backwoods county. He was an African-American man. The victim, the victim in this case is, is a white woman, which is important and obviously goes without saying why that's important. And during jury selection, the prosecutor had a goal of, of, of getting an all-white jury. And so what he did in his notes of, of all, all the people in the veneer in the jury pool, next to all of the potential African-American jurors, he wrote the uh, letter N next to them to signify that they were African-American. This was not uncovered until, I believe, 2015 or 2016. He, Mr. Gates was given the death penalty. He was on Georgia death row for a long time, I think 15 or 20 years. His death sentence was overturned, um, but he was still uh, serving a life without parole sentence. And that was a very, very tough case because it's so old, uh, but there's just so much evidence of racial bias, not even bias, that doesn't even, that doesn't even cover it. Just blatant discrimination. Not an outlier. Yeah, you know, people talk to me. How could this happen? How how this is so outrageous? How how can this how how can this happen? It is not the asterisk. It is not the exception to the rule. There are cases like this all across the country that I could point to. Obviously, disproportionately to the black black and brown communities, but this can happen to anyone. With this injustice in mind, what does Brandon see his role and the role of the Innocence Project in trying to combat this systemic racism? In order to change any system that is as big as our criminal legal system is, it really takes the masses. It takes the public because at the end of the day, it all boils down to accountability. It boils down to accountability um, our law enforcement, it boils down to accountability to the legislators, it comes down to accountability to our prosecutors, to prosecute law enforcement officers who murder individuals like George Floyd. There's a lot of power that is put into the hands of a select few when it comes to the criminal legal system and it, it really boils down to accountability for those individuals everything is kind of intertwined so many of our cases are boiled down to a crime needs to be solved there is a convenient suspect who happens to be a young african-american man and he's an easy target and, and law enforcement can, quote unquote, solve a crime and, and put this guy away and everyone can move on with their life uh, except for the individual the, and the individual's family and the individual's community who are just ravished by what occurs. And we see that so often in our work and it's just it's so heartbreaking and that 
stuff like this can happen in, in 2020 in our society. That said, Brandon and his team do have victories, though the victory that you see of Though the victory that you see on the Netflix documentaries of people waving in success, that's just the beginning of the story. This was the reason why I went to law school. For, for the most part, I hate the law. The law is an oppressive system that benefits the wealthy and devastates the poor and the communities of color. It's an oppressive system. Much of my law school experience just really didn't enjoy it you know you know so much of it doesn't doesn't do anything for me you know sitting in a contracts class or a business law class it doesn't do anything for me i knew what my purpose was i knew why i came to law school and you know this was my goal at the end of it is that i wanted to work for an innocence organization it didn't really matter where i just knew that this was the work that i wanted to do if anyone has seen, you know, the Netflix documentaries or, or, you know, just in the news in general, anytime somebody is released after serving decades in prison, you kind of have this like glorious moment outside the courthouse where everyone's like cheering. And, you know, I've been there for a couple, a couple of those kind of moments. It, it's really, really, really tough work to get there. It's devastatingly tough. Uh, it's, it's, fairly easy to convict somebody in our society, I would venture to say. It is monumentally more difficult because of legal standards and because of legal technicalities and because just kind of this notion in society that we don't want to believe that these things happen and so we kind of sweep them under the rug. It's monumentally more difficult to exonerate somebody. You, you don't really have to prove their, their innocence. You have to solve the crime. You have to show that somebody else did this crime in many cases through either through scientific means or through investigation. You have to prove that somebody else did this uh, in many cases. So to get to that day when somebody gets out of prison and somebody is, is truly a free man or woman, it means a lot. It means a lot. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there because then that only opens up a whole new can of worms, a whole new can of issues. Because when somebody is released from prison, they're given nothing. They're not given any sort of means to move on with their life. And if we if we step back and think about it, you know, the gentleman that I that I mentioned earlier, Mr. Sipazari, he the last time he saw freedom was in the 80s you're coming out to a world that is completely foreign to you most of his family had had passed away um that's only the beginning of the struggle really because for someone like him you know prison is is kind of been the norm and in a world that he's understood albeit a terrible place understood for 35 years and then he comes out to a world that He's a free man, but he doesn't understand because our society has changed, changes so rapidly. With that in mind, that those exonerated of these crimes don't get much support to reintegrate into society, Brandon's work extends beyond his day job at the Innocence Project and into his other passion of tutoring and education. So one of the things that I think is so important is education. I, I would be remiss if I didn't say that, that 
kind of value system and, and the importance of, of education didn't, you know, stem from the the really valuable education that I received. Not only just the education, but just kind of the underlying principles of, of determination and, and perseverance and all of those things that come with being in such a rigorous uh, environment. And uh, I recognize that I'm a very privileged individual. I have been given a lot in my life. Looking back, the greatest thing that sticks out is just how inspiring it was to sit in classrooms with so many brilliant people and so many so many talented people so many people that have accomplished so much and, and really how inspiring looking back how fortunate i know i was um to just be in rooms with all of these great minds i, I don't think that i really appreciated that in the moment uh, but certainly once i got to college and looking back on it now how inspiring that's been to me and, and kind of like you know, me wanting to to do something great, you know, being inspired by all the people that I went to high school with. And I believe wholeheartedly that to the extent that I'm able that I I think it's essential to give back. And in one way that I've really tried to give back uh, with the with the wonderful education that I've been afforded is uh, that I go into prisons and I tutor individuals who are trying to become educated, whether that be basic reading and writing, individuals who you know are, are, are motivated to you know get a GED. Uh, when I was in Florida, I tutored at Florida State Prison, which is Florida's maximum security and death row facility. I tutored uh, incarcerated men who had release dates within three years with the goal of getting, helping them get their GED before they were released. When I was in Georgia, I taught uh, high school English classes to juveniles who were detained at Juvenile Detention Center in Atlanta. And in Massachusetts, post-pandemic once once I can get back into the prisons I'll be doing some more stuff with with adult uh, incarcerated people as well I just think that is so important trying to break break the cycle break that cycle for themselves now Brandon doesn't want to be thought of as some savior or something in fact he'd actually prefer to be doing something else if he absolutely could yeah I mean this is the reason why I went to law school this is the the, the work I find to be so meaningful I don't want to glorify it or anything because it's it's important and I, and I wish more people did it, but I also wish it didn't have to be done. I wish I didn't have a job. That would be nice. I would, I would be doing something else. But in the 10 years since graduation, Brandon's found a purpose in what he's doing, dealing with the systemic problem and that he believes is his calling. You know, in high school, like I said, I was just kind of going along with the flow and trying to survive and, you know, have fun and... And then I kind of realized at some point in time that I wanted to do, I wanted, I wanted my life to have some sort of value to it, to some, some sort of meaning to it, and to really help others, people that, that are really in need of help. And so I, I definitely kind of found a purpose, found a, a motivation 
to help people who are incarcerated, to help do what I can to let those people's voices be heard, to, for those people to tell their own stories, and to really try to provide you know my little my little itty bitty speck of of help that I can to this greater movement this very important period of time that we find ourselves in we're really on I believe we're on the cusp of of some change and it's kind of up to us to to figure out how big that change is going to be For our final classmate this episode, we'll talk to somebody who also found a purpose for their vocation in life from a bit more of a divine inspiration. So a couple of years back, I was scrolling through Facebook, as you do, and I saw a video posted by one of my Catholic friends about this student conference with some performances. And in particular, there was a dance number by some sisters to the tune of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air theme song. While the lyrics were pretty good, what really caught my eye was one of the sisters who was smoothing and grooving across the stage while wearing those plastic lab goggles we used in chemistry. At first, I thought she looked familiar and thought it couldn't be, but after checking with some friends, it turns out it was indeed our classmate, Catherine Lopez. Or, as he goes by now, Sister Catherine of the Holy Trinity. My congregation is the Mercedarian Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament. Currently, I am in my second year of temporary vows and located at our house in Gainesville, Florida. Now, if you remember Catherine from high school, she actually had joined us in our junior year transferring in. Her mom was in the Navy and they had lived in Jacksonville previously and they ended up coming back to the city when her mom retired. Well, my mom was in the Navy, so I've moved around a whole lot. So I actually went to three different high schools when we were wondering where we're going to go when my mom retired. We all seem to really like Jacksonville and also just the hope that I would go to UF. Now, it shouldn't be surprised, coming from me, that I remember Catherine mostly from dancing with her in the Filipino dance group for the multicultural extravaganza. I didn't really dance, but something drew me there. I was always someone who was like, okay, I need to do one thing that's kind of out of my comfort zone. And so I forget, I think maybe it was Kayla because we were in the same homeroom because of our last name. And they're like, oh, you should join multi. And I was like, I don't really dance, but something just told me, okay, let's just do it. So I made a lot of friends really through through the multicultural club. Now, she may not have naturally been a dancer when she joined multi. She definitely was afterwards, as evidenced by her moves at that Catholic student conference. But more on that later. On top of dancing, Catherine is also an excellent singer. But I did sing a lot and I did a lot of um, like small things like at Filipino Pride Day. Um, I sang a lot in my church. I did do Fall Fest once. Um, I did that with two other people. And that was really fun because it was kind of scary since I was still like the new girl because it was junior year that I did Fall Fest. Um, but it, it was a lot of fun to be able to sing there. Now... 
Fun fact, I was actually able to find an old YouTube video of that Fall Fest performance. Anyway, after graduating from Stanton, Catherine ended up going to study at the University of Florida. When I went to UF, I was starting to study chemical engineering. In my junior year, going through thermal, fluids, all of those classes and finding out I just, I didn't have a knack for it or like even a motivation to try and get it. So I was at a standstill at that point of just like, okay, like I'm not doing well in my classes, nor do I have any motivation to try and like understand it um not out of necessarily laziness just out of like not being necessarily that interested so after going to the advisor that was in my department uh, decided to just go into chemistry because she realized okay it seems like the engineering part is like what um you aren't interested in now, finding that you enjoyed chemistry instead of chemical engineering is already a big change and a big realization that would impact the rest of your life. But that wasn't the only self-discovery that Catherine would have about herself and her future vocation. I went back to the church in my freshman year of college. I know that sounds weird, but what I really mean is that I didn't really have a relationship with God. And when I went to that retreat my freshman year, that and having this encounter with Jesus really changed things. I wanted to change things. That would continue through my years in college of just growing in my faith. And so there came a point where I just really wanted to work for the church. So though I was still pursuing a chemistry degree, I've more and more found myself not being so interested in pursuing a career in the chemical field, even though that would have been fun like I had ideas of where I wanted to go like doing quality control or helping out in drug labs but there was something that was changing in in me of my direction so as I was still pursuing like a career in the in the chemistry field doors just never opened up for me even when like going to career showcase after career showcase just didn't hear anything so it really helped confirm the direction I was going in when I felt that I needed to discern to decide like if if maybe entering the convent is what the Lord wants of me it does seem drastic it's it's not like I totally like renounce chemistry and, and actually I find myself using it at times but it's just my direction in life um, just went a different way as I continued to grow in my relationship with with God, and, and not to say that if, uh, if I did get a chemistry um, job or a career in that field, that I couldn't still practice my faith. Like there's many people who practice their faith very much who are in in the world, but really the Lord was just directing me into this other path. That other path would turn out to be the religious life. After talking to some of the sisters during the summer of her junior year, Catherine did some soul-searching about what was important to her in life. And then that summer, right after junior year, so the summer before senior year, I went on a retreat. And that's when things really changed 
um, direction for me because I, I found myself, you know, with anything, sometimes we have to evaluate where we are in that journey. And so I found myself in my faith that oh, I think I'm becoming very lukewarm and I don't want that to continue. I, I want to be on fire to reignite this flame. So I, I asked Jesus, how can I love you more? And long story short, yeah, he asked me to discern religious life. And so that really changed the direction of where I was going. Now, that term, discernment, or to discern, has a very specific meaning when it comes to pursuing religious life. Discernment for religious life or a man who's discerning priesthood, I mean, it even applies to anyone discerning the vocation of marriage, is to prayerfully decide where the Lord is leading. And so really being in a dialogue and asking our Lord, what do you want of me? And so it's, it's one of those things where, you know, all of us want to find our path. And the thing is, we actually all have a mission. So it's like, okay, what is it that you want of me? And actually in discernment, it's learning then to be in relationship with God so I know who I am. And then thus, I will know what my mission is in this world. Because um, if you do it backwards, you're not you're going to get lost. If you're just trying to find your mission first, then you make your mission your identity. It's not just like, okay, trying to find out the big question. Are you calling me to be a sister? But really, it's a more um, subtle process. Um, was discerning and, and praying. I, I did find myself seeing that the Lord was leading me to enter the convent. But then again, entering the convent, it's not like, you know, one and done. Like, um, it's not a trap. <laughs> like you, you then pray with the community there, and there's a discernment process within um, the convent, with the community. Again, relationship. So relationship with God and then relationship with others. So then just discerning, okay, is God, is this God's will? Now, obviously, not everyone listening to this podcast is Catholic or not even Christian or even religious at all. But I really do think we can all take something away from what discernment is about understanding who you are and how you relate to others and from finding that identity, then discovering what your mission in life is from there. Not the other way around of deciding your mission first that will then define you via your purpose. I think it's also important to take away that discernment is not a one-and-done endeavor, but a continuous process that can yield different results each time as you grow up. Discernment isn't about finding the vacation in and of itself, but rather the process of seriously considering a potential path in life. And it is through that act of going through that consideration that you do find if it is the path for you or if there's something else that catches your eye instead. As a really simplified analogy, uh, one thing I like to do when I'm trying to make a decision is flip a coin and give something heads or tails. And I don't actually pay attention to the end result, but it is in the act of flipping the coin and realizing, oh, I really hope it comes up this or that, which helps me make my decision in the end. And I know many women and, and men who like, you know, discerning priesthood and they're asked to go enter the seminary. Or maybe they don't even enter, but just to seriously consider um, this vocation. But then they end up actually finding their vocation to married life because of their journey in discerning religious life or discerning priesthood. And actually, it's an acronym that we call RIM, so Relationship Identity Mission. And there's just a joke that we say, it's like, if you do it upside down, it's just mer. Um, being in relationship with others. And so for those of us who 
really have that relationship um, with God. And you can say like relationship with truth, relationship with real love, and then your identity is found in that. So for, for me, once I have that relationship with God, I then realize, oh, I am a child of God. And then in that given the mission, because then if it's, if it's the other way around, we can lose who we are because then we identify with what we do rather than who we are. I know people can see like, oh, like maybe I have this huge mission in life and, and maybe we do, but how that looks like in the day to day can change. So if we get stuck in what, what that looks like. So for example, teaching, if I were to get stuck in teaching, but then all of a sudden I'm, I'm asked to go somewhere else. If, if I'm identifying with my mission, like if I identify so much with teaching, then I'm going to, it's going to be hard for me to, to switch over to something else that's still serving the mission, but is different from what I was doing. So after graduating from college, Catherine did an internship with the Catholic Gators, the Catholic campus ministry of the University of Florida, to try and continue her discernment. Uh, this would lead her to go to Cleveland, uh, the formation house of her sisterhood, uh, beginning in 2015. Now, to go in a little bit into in-depth of the process of becoming a religious sister, this move in 2015 was the beginning of three years of preparation. Her first year, postulancy, would be used to get used to the day-to-day -day life of living in the convent. The next two years, late 2016 through early 2018, would be her novitiate years, essentially being a novice and learning about what religious life was all about without actually taking her vows. Throughout the entire time, the constant process of discernment was ongoing to determine if this was really the path for her. And then come 2018, she professed her vows publicly for the first time. But the discernment is not yet done there. Fun facts, sisters actually, the first several years of their religious life, renew their vows annually before ultimately making a profession of perpetual vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience. Catherine has taken those annual vows three times at this point. In addition, she also completed a Master's of Theology before receiving her assignment to serve at the Junior House at the Mercedarian Sisters in Gainesville. Now, I was super curious, what is religious life like? Also, fun fact I learned in this interview, there's apparently a difference between being a nun and a sister. While they're very similar, the difference is that a nun lives a cloistered, monastic life, while a sister is more out and about and visible in the world, such as through teaching or being a nurse or what Catherine does at the campus ministry. Um, so we, we wake up usually at like 5.30 and we have our morning prayer and we have breakfast and we have adoration with um, exposition of the Blessed Sacrament um, every day and for an hour. Also Lexio Divina, which means divine reading, which is praying with, with scripture and also spiritual reading. And all of this is happening in the morning and then we get to lunch and then at lunch after lunch we go to our different um apostolates that we serve in within the catholic gators community or this or saint augustine parish um so two of our sisters serve at what we call the fiat center um, where they help with spiritual direction and counseling i serve at the parish so i just help with um, planning the celebrations and everything that we have at the church um, mass happens at some point 
then two of our sisters help with campus ministry with the students so they're more involved with interacting with the college students so after that we all come home and we have what we call evening prayer or vespers we then have dinner and then there's it can vary from studying something that we need because we're always learning like it's just even though we're we profess vows it doesn't mean formation ends so we have either just formation or exercise go take a walk with uh, together meeting and somewhere in there, I forgot that we also pray the rosary in the morning. Just There's a lot of prayer, if you couldn't tell. Um, and then after that, um, we pray we pray night prayer at about 8 o'clock. And then um, lights out are at, are at 10. Um, but for us personal interests, so I, I picked up piano again. I played piano for ni- the first nine years of my life. There is time for for that and in, but it also is part of it is for us to then find that time and to make sure that it's not taking over the basic necessities of our life and who we are there's times where it's just like i haven't had time to even pay attention to that because we've just been so busy so if Catherine doesn't have a consistent time to practice the piano where did that clip of her dancing across the states come from it was from a conference called um, SLS. And at that time, I was still a novice. So you'll still see me with our novice habit and a white veil. And if you look closely, I found some chemistry goggles. So I actually put them on over my glasses while all my other sisters are wearing sunglasses. And so that conference was a focus conference, which stands for Fellowship of Catholic University Students. And they had emailed us who had registered. And they said that they were having like a religious talent show. Uh, my mother mistress then looked at me and she just encouraged me to really like just just go, go for it. Because it's not something I usually get to do because it's just not normally part of our lives for me to just break out and dance like that all the time. But it's still, again, like a, a part of me. It's not something to be suppressed or ignored. Like it's still something good. So it was a, a situation like that where my superior really wisely was like, you know, this is the time for you to like do this. And it's not for myself, but it, it's to really show others that we sisters are still normal human beings or normally weird human beings. So if their performance was meant to dispel the belief that sisters weren't normal, weird human beings, what other misconceptions about religious life has he went into? Well, one that we're not human <laughs> and that we're angels. It's actually quite the contrary. Like we don't, leave who we are to become someone fit into this like model that we think of what a religious sister is or a nun is actually entering into this life we become more of who we are we discover who we're meant to be and this life is meant for us if we're called to it any any path of life any vocation that we enter into is meant to help us become who we actually are. I remember even some of my friends being kind of scared that they wouldn't recognize who I was anymore. But then they found themselves like, oh, actually, like those parts of me that they love so much actually were amplified. The other thing is that they're boring. (laughs) I can tell you that my sisters are far from boring. We have this joke in the convent, though, because we're just constantly moving. But one of our superiors, sometimes she'll just tell us like, please, please get bored because like, and it's actually in those moments where like we get to just relax when we are, you know, quote unquote bored. 
but really they're not boring. They're like joyful women um, who are my family and they, we all come from different backgrounds and all of that contributes to our community. Now, again, obviously not everyone in our class can relate to religion and religious life in the same way that Catherine does. But after talking to her, I still think that there are really some valuable lessons about finding your way through life that anyone, secular or not, can find to be helpful reminders on what's important in life. What I've learned is to continue to pursue truth and pursue real love. But I'm not just talking about like that romantic love, but love that drives us, that moves us. So even within our families, our friendships, the sacrifices, I think we really find that Love is tried and proven through sacrifice and suffering when you persevere through that. Another thing is just faithfulness and perseverance are very vital in our lives. Um, I mean, we're social beings and we're meant for relationship. I I think we can all agree with that. We're not meant to be traveling our lives alone. And one, to accept that, to let people help us. I, that's one lesson that I continue to learn. You know, I really found myself being self-sufficient um, and self-reliant. But actually, that's something where we have to let go. Because we, we can't be our own, like, God. <laughs> Letting people help us. And that's something, you know, true, just to be humble. Um, to let people do that. To, to even recognize we need help in a community of people who are who are good and will keep me accountable and then letting letting them help me. I think also with fidelity and perseverance, you know, just to be to be true to those people in our lives. And this and this can look different in our relationships. It's not going to look the same. But to always persevere in love and also to be faithful to those we find in our lives. So even if sometimes there may be years of a of a rift, but if we're doing our part to at least um, be open to reconciliation, to be open to dialogue, then we will find that that's actually going to to be beneficial for our lives down the road. We won't be able to see it <laughs> until it happens. And maybe sometimes we won't see it, but I can guarantee that there is a reward to being faithful um, and to being true to, to people. Living a life of love for your fellow man. Learning to rely on others to support you and help you. And if you do that, believing that things will work out for the better, perhaps in ways that you couldn't ever imagine happening when you started out or in ways that you may never end up seeing. If you're looking for a way to try to find your purpose, I can hardly think of a better guidelines by which to make a change. So, 
Over the course of this series, I've referenced musical theater a couple of times, be it my love for Hamilton or Austin Weitzel performing a song from Avenue Q at the Thespian Districts. Another song from Avenue Q I really like is the song Purpose, where one character tries to discern what his purpose in life should be after graduating college. I don't know how I know, but I'm gonna find my purpose. I don't know where I'm gonna look, but I'm gonna find my purpose. Gotta find out, don't wanna wait. Got to make sure that my life will be great. Gotta find my purpose before it's too late. Despite what the characters in that show suggest, I don't think it's ever too late to find your purpose. Ben, Brandon, and Catherine all showed this by starting college on one track, engineering, sports management, or chemistry, before pivoting and find something that was much more fulfilling for them for who they were and what was important to them. Making a difference in others' lives, fighting injustices in our world, living a life of love and truth. As they, and certainly many other classmates from all the other episodes on this podcast have hopefully shown you, it's not a straight and easy path wrapped up in a musical two-hour Broadway play. Even over the course of producing this series, I've done a lot of soul-searching myself on what I feel my own purpose in life is. I graduated Stanton planning to study finance before realizing that investment banking really wasn't for me probably due to the poor stat in econ classes freshman year, and I ended up switching over to technology and later operations. I graduated college without actually having a job in place, but was lucky enough, based on my opportunities presented by my education, to find one. And while it's been a great six years since graduation doing that kind of thing, I've slowly discerned that what I'm really interested in for my vocation, so to speak, is storytelling. Maybe it's storytelling through data as a data analyst, or maybe more directly, telling the inspirational stories of my peers through podcasting or whatever other means are out there. It's a work in progress that I'll never quite be done with, and I don't think any of us will be. And that's okay. Everything works out better in the end, so long as we're honest with ourselves about what's best for us, those we love, and who we are as individuals. And it's with that mindset, I think, is how we, the Stanton College Prep Class of 2010, will run this. Special thanks to Ben, Brandon, and Sister Catherine for sharing those stories with me. I really appreciate it. And special thanks to you, my listeners, for your patience with me as I sort things out in my life's direction before finally putting together this episode. It really means the world to me that you guys were tuning in and listening and giving me all the positive feedback I got from you guys. I even got some people saying that this podcast was the number one podcast on their Spotify wrapped. So thanks to you guys. Uh, the opening and closing music was provided, again, by Michael Xavier Barriwan, our classmate, uh, aka Namekian Silk. Check his stuff out on SoundCloud and Spotify. Other music provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Editing and production is provided by Ninja Boy Media. Also, a quick note, the views and opinions expressed on the show reflect the personal thoughts of those involved alone and do not reflect those of any other groups or organizations. 
on next week's final episode of the We Run This Podcast. Remember how I bugged you all season about emailing in a voice memo to say with the class? That's right, it's the call-in episode. To close out probably one of the most memorable years in our lives to date, we'll be hearing from you guys. It's not too late, actually, to send in your voicemail. If you can get it in by December 30th, 2020, for the year-end special on December 31st, you'll be able to be featured. Just use the voice memo app on your phone to record your name, where you're at now, and what you've been up to, and anything you want to say with the class, be it best wishes for 2021 or just holiday good cheer. You can email those to ninjaboymedia at n-i-n-j-a-b-o-i-m-e-d-i-a at gmail.com. I promise it won't take me three months to put out this final episode. Anyway, until then, I'm Paul Bautista. And remember, we run this.